purposes. Genesis chapter 37, we're going to begin this morning and over the next few weeks, I want us to take a look at the life of Joseph, particularly as a life of integrity. Joseph is one of those characters in the Bible. He was not perfect. There's only been one perfect person that's ever walked this earth, and uh, it is Jesus Christ. But Joseph is a great example of a life of integrity. I believe that in our day and time, it's not hard for us to see that we have an integrity crisis. We have a crisis in uh, academics. We have a crisis in the business world. We see this crisis in sports. We see it in every layer. We see it in politics. We see it in every layer of society. Unfortunately, we also see it within the church, many times with church leaders, but also with those who are a part of the church, the believers within the church. And there are some truths this morning that I hope that you'll take away that will speak to you. God's Word will speak to specific instances in our lives in which we need to have integrity, integrity in our family, integrity in our finances, integrity in our work, integrity in school, wherever we are. But above all, that there be a spirit of spiritual integrity, that we are who we claim to be. That's really what integrity is. Someone has defined it. It's the quality of being honest and having strong moral principles. But the word itself means wholeness. It means that a person with integrity is a person that is not divided. They're not merely pretending. They're not hypocritical. What they are on the outside is a clear reflection and a true reflection of what they are on the inside. That our outward perception is a reflection of our inward reality. That is a problem. He or she in this that has integrity is whole. The body is what the spirit is what the soul is. Now, as we look at the life of Joseph, I, I want to just pause a minute and say that the Bible is clear that the characters and the stories in the Old Testament, the narratives in the Old Testament, are given to us for a reason. They're given to us, Romans 15, 4 says, for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. We learn from the lives of the individuals in the Old Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says, these things were written for our example. So when we look at the life of Joseph, we see some help, we see some important strength in the area of integrity. This is something that is not new. About 40 or 50 years ago, Dr. Warren Wearsby wrote a book called The Integrity Crisis. He saw the trajectory that the church was on to where we are today. Very prophetic voice. He saw what was coming. Listen to what he said. He said, we are facing an integrity crisis. Not only is the conduct of the church in question, but so is the very character of the church. The world is asking, can the church be trusted? And how we answer is as important as what we answer. The world looks at the church, and unfortunately, we often get lumped in together, even though we don't participate in some of the scandals, and we're not a part of some of the scandals. It's easy for us to feel a part of it. When we hear people make blanket statements, recently heard some people making some blanket statements about pastors, and my first inclination was, hey, that's, that's the exact opposite of what I strive to be and do. 
but I understand in their mind they lump everyone together. Many times they'll do the same thing with Christians, and we feel that burden. We feel that, that sense of, of condemnation from the world. I remember back in the 1980s, my dad was an evangelist, and we traveled, and he was a little bit different from the evangelist that the world was seeing during the 1980s. If you remember back then, um, there were certain televangelists that were making some headlines, and they weren't the best headlines. They were making waves, and, and so I remember times when people would ask him, what do you do? And he would say, I'm an evangelist, and they would say, oh, you're one of those. And they knew exactly, and there was nothing anywhere near that same, but that same sense of condemnation, and the church is facing that today. It's easy for us when we hear those things, though, when we hear of people who are in integrity situations, and they have scandals, and they have moral failures. It's easy to do one of two things. It's easy to try to draw attention to them because we're aware of the own failings in our own life, or it's easy to pretend as if they don't matter because we don't want anybody to notice the things, in our, the specks, in our, the beams in our own eye. We have to be aware. We have to address this matter of integrity. In Joseph's life, Joseph is one of the strongest testimonies of integrity that we'll find in the Bible. Through every area of his life, he faced a, he faced a test of integrity. We'll see in our chapter this morning that in his, in his trials, in the troubles, the, the troubled childhood that he had, he maintained his integrity. We'll see in another chapter his temptation. When he is tempted to sin, will he maintain his integrity? And then in the great test of his life, when Joseph has done what is right, and because he has done what is right, he is facing difficulties, that becomes one of the most difficult tests of our faith, especially when there's a prevalent mindset within the church that if I do all the things I'm supposed to do, God is obligated to make things go well for me. And when it doesn't, it's a test of our faith. Will we stay true? Will we have integrity in that moment? And then the last scene of Joseph's life, we'll see his integrity in his triumph because there are those who can hold their integrity when times are hard, but they fail when things go well. So I want you to see this morning in chapter 37, Joseph's integrity in his trials, Joseph's integrity in a, in a troubled family situation. In Genesis chapter 37, we have a dysfunctional family is the best way that I know how to put it. Joseph is born into a family where there is a lot of problems. Joseph is born into a family where there are, there's one dad, four mothers, and 13 kids. Now, Joseph, uh, Jacob started out with just the idea of one. He, he had one girl in mind, and he ended up with four wives out of it. I would never say anything like this, but a, a fellow I heard one time said that the problem with having four wives wasn't four wives, it was having four mother-in-laws. So I would never say anything like that at all. I've got better sense than that. But there's some trouble in this family. Jacob loves Rachel. You know the account and the story. If you don't, you can go back and read the chapters later. But the summary is, is that Jacob loved Rachel. 
She was beautiful, and he worked seven years to earn the right to marry her. That was the price that he paid, was to work seven years. And at the end of the seven years, his father-in-law, Laban, pulled a dirty trick on him and switched wives at the wedding, and he ended up marrying Leah, who was nice. She wasn't beautiful, but she was nice. So he says, hey, seven years are nothing. Why don't you work seven more to marry, work seven more years for me and I'll let you marry Rachel. And so he worked 14 years. I was in the service one night where this was preached and a fellow came up afterwards and he said, Jacob worked 14 years to marry his wife. I've been married to my wife and I've been working for her ever since. The tensions within the family grew when suddenly now there's a competition between who's going to have children and God blesses Leah and she begins to have several sons. And so this competition grows, and as the competition grows, the family grows, and now there's more than one wife. Now Jacob takes the handmaids of his two wives, and now he has four wives. Let me just pause a minute and say something. I think this is important because we live in a time that is desperate to redefine what God's Word says about marriage. And there are times in the Scriptures where you will find where God allowed, never endorsed, but allowed multiple marriages, but God's original intent, according to Jesus in, in Matthew chapter 19, was one man and one woman. And any other form of that, whether it's one man and many wives, or many, I don't know if there's ever been one wife and many men, most women are smarter than that, are more of one and more of the same, and that's not God's intent. And every single time in Scripture you find multiple wives in a family and multiple uh, bigamous marriage, polygamous marriage, you will find issues and trouble. Why? Because that's not the way God designed it. That's not the way God intended. And sure enough, with four wives, now there's 12 sons and a daughter. Poor Dinah, the daughter. I cannot imagine what it was like for her to grow up in a family with 12 sons that also hated each other. And so this is a, this is a tumultuous family. As they grow up, there's the conflict, and Jacob finally gets this son by Rachel and is named Joseph. He's the 11th son of 12, and he's so happy. To him, Joseph is treated as the firstborn. Can you imagine what it did to those 10 older brothers for him to suddenly treat this young child as the firstborn? In fact, as we read this, you'll see what happens. Then after Jacob, after Joseph is born, young Benjamin comes along, and now there's 12. But look what the, the dysfunction within this family, the hatred within this family. Jacob dwelled in the land wherein his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, even God puts Joseph first. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. Now, the scriptures does not give us any indication. Some have tried to make out that Joseph was being a tattletale. But Joseph brought to his father that their, his, his older brothers were doing something they should not have done. Now, whether whatever Joseph's motivation was, we don't know. But it clearly was an evil report. It certainly did not endear him to his brothers who were already jealous of the attention that Joseph was getting. 
Verse 3, Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. Here's ten brothers that desperately hate this young man. Joseph probably in his maybe late teens, we don't know exactly, but he would have been a very young man at this point. It's the kind of thing where when Joseph walks by, you know, they stick their foot out, they're going to trip him. I can only imagine having seen some sibling rivalries over the years. I can only imagine the things that ten older brothers did to Joseph. Uh, These were not nice, flannel graph, cut-out Sunday school characters. If you've read the previous chapters, you know that these were violent men. These were men who had families of their own. These were men that when they found out their sister had been defiled, they came out of the fields and they found out that dad had done absolutely nothing about it, and they went in and they lied to the city, and they went in and they killed every person in an entire city. These are not the people that you want to not be able to speak peaceably to you. And so what does Joseph do as we see this dysfunctional family? We see really an attempted murder. Joseph suddenly has some dreams given by God. Now he does some things that I'm not sure probably was the wisest thing to do. When you have ten grown murderers, murderers who hate you and can't speak peaceably to you, You probably don't want to tell them that in a dream, uh, they bowed down and honored you. It's pretty much guaranteed to tick them off. That's what he does. And then he has another dream, and he dreams that not only his brothers, but his his dad and his mom and his mom and his mom, (laughs) they all are going to honor Joseph. And so the anger begins to grow in his brothers. The pressure begins to grow. What will Joseph's response be? You see, it's important for us to remember that when pressure is applied to a a substance, it does not create cracks. It just simply reveals where there was already a weakness. And when the pressure is applied to our lives, it is not the pressure that causes the cracks in our integrity. It simply reveals where there was already a character weakness. So the pressure is applied to Joseph and what what will happen in Joseph's life. I think we get at least a little bit of an indication of this in verse 13. Joseph's brothers are sent by their father to Shechem to watch some of the family's herds. And Israel said unto Joseph, Do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send thee unto them. And he said to him, Here am I. Now Joseph was young, but I can't believe that he was so naive as to not be aware that his brothers hated him. And I'm reminded as I look at this verse, and I see this verse, I'm reminded of another son who was despised and rejected and hated and yet sent by his father into a situation where he knew the outcome would be death. You see, Joseph points us, and his best character points, he points us to Jesus. And he reminds us of the one who was perfect in in his integrity. 
And what does Joseph say? Joseph says, Father, here I am. I'm willing to go, knowing what he was heading into. This gives us a little bit of insight that even when Joseph is in this situation with his family and there's these pressures and he's got, he's got stepmothers that hate him, he's got stepbrothers that hate him, he's got a father that's putting pressure on him by treating him as well as he does and loving him. Joseph, Jacob is not helping the situation by loving Joseph as his firstborn son. And all of these pressures... Joseph stays true and does what he's supposed to do. He says, Father, I'll go. And so Joseph goes to his brothers. They see him afar off, and they said, here comes that dreamer. They began immediately to plot to kill him. They didn't have to think about it. They didn't have to get worked up into it. The very sight of Joseph had them ready to kill him. And so they said, well, let's take him, and we'll, we'll, kill, we'll kill him, and Reuben said, hey, let's, let's just put him, let's throw him over here in a pit, and we'll save that for later. And Reuben, the eldest of Jacob's sons, had in his mind that he was going to come back later and let Joseph free. And then as they're sitting around, and Reuben's out in the field, they see a group of merchants traveling by, Ishmaelites, ancestors of some of the folks who are still around today, as a matter of fact, and they're passing by, and Judah gets this great idea. Hey, let's don't kill Joseph. If we kill him, we'll have his blood on our hands. Let's sell him to these merchants as a slave. We'll make some money. We won't be guilty of murder, and nobody will be any the wiser. We'll be rid of Joseph, but we won't have to carry around the guilt. It's not that he really cared about Joseph. He just didn't want to have to have the guilt on his mind. And so that's what they do, and they take the coat of many colors, and they dip it in blood, and they send it to their father. And in their guilt, in their immoral behavior, they're still careful because they don't want to lie to dad. And so what do they do? They said, we found this coat. You say whether it's your son's coat or not. We, we don't know whether it's Joseph's coat or not. You know, as we, we've got to be very careful. I've known some people who would do some of the most immoral, unethical things. But boy, there was lines they wouldn't cross. I won't tell a lie. I'll murder my brother. I'll sell him into slavery, but I'm not a liar. Well, good for you. This is the contrast of where we see Joseph. This is the backdrop. This is the setting. This is the scene where Joseph's integrity begins to stand out against a father who was deceitful and his name means deceiver or trickster. And brothers who are murderous and deceitful and lied to an entire city and killed every person in the city. And a family that is just filled with immoral behavior and misconduct. And here stands Joseph's integrity. If there's ever been a time in this world when there is a need for the people of God to shine as a light in the darkness, it is now. If there's ever been a time for integrity, for what is real on the inside to show on the outside, and what shows on the outside to be really what is on the inside, it is this day and time. There is a need for integrity. There's many truths we could draw from this, but 
that importance, that value. I want to read something that's a little bit longer than I normally read, but an illustration of the importance of integrity. It's given in, a, in an ethics conference by a military general, General Charles Krulak. And it was in relation to integrity in that field. But it can be true and integrity in our academics at school, your work at business, at, at your job, your family, your marriage relationship, but above all, in our spiritual relationship. That we are who we claim to be. When he was speaking about the need for integrity, General Krulak said, the word integrity itself is a martial word that comes to us from the ancient Roman army. Tradition during the time of the 12 Caesars, the Roman army would conduct morning inspections. As the inspecting centurion would come in front of each legionnaire, the, the soldier would strike with his right fist the armor breastplate that covered his heart. As the soldier struck his armor, he would shout, Integritus. The armor had to be strongest there in order to protect the heart from the thrust of a sword or from the strike of an arrow. And as he struck his armor and shouted, Integritus, which in Latin means material wholeness, completeness, and entirety, the inspecting centurion would listen closely for this affirmation and for the ring that was the sound that, kept, that the armor would give off. Satisfied that the armor was sound and that the soldier beneath it was protected, he would move on to the next man who would repeat the process. At about the same time, the Praetorians, or the imperial bodyguard, those who guarded the Roman emperor, were ascending into power and influence, drawn from the best politically correct soldiers of the legions, they received the finest equipment and armor. They no longer had to shout integritus to signify that their armor was sound because they had the best and it wasn't necessary. Instead, as they struck their breastplate, they would shout, Hail Caesar, to signify that their heart belonged to the emperor, not to their unit, not to an institution, not to a code of ideals, but to one man. They armored themselves to serve the cause of a single man. A century passed, and the rift between the legion and the imperial bodyguard and its excesses grew larger. To signify the difference between the two organizations, the legionnaire, upon striking his armor, would no longer shout integritus, but instead would shout integer. Integer mean, meant undiminished, complete, perfect. It not only indicated that the armor was sound, it also indicated that the soldier wearing the armor was of sound character. He was complete in his integrity. His heart was in the right place. His standards and morals were high. He was not associated with the immoral conduct that was rapidly becoming the signature of the imperial guards. The armor of integrity continued to serve the legion well for over four centuries. They held the line against the marauding Goths and Vandals, but by 383 AD, the social decline that infected the Roman Republic and the Praetorian Guard had its effects also upon the legion. As a fourth century 
Roman, so, Roman general wrote, quote, when because of negligence and laziness, parade ground drills were abandoned, the customary armor began to feel heavy, since the soldiers rarely, if ever, wore it. Therefore, they first asked the emperor to set aside the breastplates and mail, and then the helmets. So he said, our soldiers fought the Goths without any protection for the heart and head and were often beaten by archers. Although there were many disasters which led to the loss of great cities, no one tried to restore the armor to the infantry. They took their armor off, and when the armor came off, so too came their integrity. It was only a matter of a few years until the legion rotted from within and was unable to hold the frontiers. The barbarians were at the gates. Is it important, is it essential for us who are in daily spiritual warfare to have integrity in our lives? It absolutely is. It is essential for us to be within what we claim to be without, for our inner reality to shape our outward demonstrations, for what is true in our hearts to be real on the outside. We need to strengthen our integrity. We need to strengthen our integrity by, first of all, being real with God. Being honest before God. God already knows who you really are. You'll never deceive Him into thinking otherwise. So be honest before God. Be willing to call the sins of your heart what they are. God knows them far better than we do. And so God calls us to repentance to repent of the sins of our hearts, and then to lay aside anything that is doubtful, anything that is questionable. God, I want to lay aside because I know that I wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, the spiritual wickedness in high places. I'm going into spiritual battle, and I need to make sure that I have put aside those things, being real before God. Be real with yourself. Be honest with yourself. Be willing to call out the things in your life that you know are wrong. Be real with your family. What you claim to be before your children, be that. What you claim and need to be with your wives. We need men who will step up and say, I'm going to have integrity to strike our chest and say, Integritus, God, I am yours. I am committed to you. And those that I will influence, my wife and my children and the rest of my family, I will lead. God, help us not to be Jacobs who put aside any responsibility and allow our children to do whatever they choose to do. But God, give us men like Joseph who will say, Lord, here I am. I want to be what you have called me to be. We need marriages with integrity. We need workers with integrity. We need students with integrity. We need those who will do what is right regardless. Those who are spiritually whole. Be real in your family. Be real in your world. Start by making sure that your spiritual life is a reality, not merely a perception. In a time when there's an integrity crisis, we need more Josephs. 
We need less Jacobs and less Rubens and less Judas, and we need more Josephs. Those who will say, despite the pressures that I'm under, when the trials come and when the troubles come, they don't cause cracks in my character. They reveal what is there. God, help me to put on the armor and do battle and to go with spiritual integrity. This morning, listen to me carefully, please. God is calling us to a place of reality. You can walk through those doors and you can have a smile on your face. You can have your Bible under your arm and you can look good on the outside. But man looks on the outside. God looks on the heart. May God give us spiritual, godly integrity. Father, I pray this morning, in this moment, that you will speak to hearts. I'm trusting you, Lord, to do what only you can do and to speak to your people. May the Holy Spirit take this truth and speak to each heart as